Hello, I'm Kim Katola, host of Cradle My Heart Radio. Our mission is preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. And our vision is to bring abortion recovery to the church, reaching out to equip and encourage pastors, elders, ministry leaders, and others so they can minister God's love to the millions of Christians personally impacted by this moral crisis of our time. Saving lives and healing hearts, this is Cradle My Heart Radio. Find us online at cradlemyheart.org. Where can you find God's voice in the noise on reproductive choice? For over a million women and men each year, the question goes beyond politics to become much more pressing and personal, both before and after the choice. And we are called to love the little children just as God does. Listen to Cradle My Heart Radio with your host, Kim Katola, speaker, writer, and broadcaster, sharing God's truth to prevent abortion and help those it hurts. Learn more at cradlemyheart.org. Thank you so much for being with us today. You are in for an amazing conversation with our guest, Charlie Camosi. Charlie is a person who I think provides hope for everyone who says, you know, I'm against abortion, but I just don't want to side with those pro-life people. (laughs) Because Charlie has found a way to really broaden the mission of saving innocent lives from abortion and also um, not alienating people through weirdness or other things, I guess is a way to say it. Charlie Camosi, welcome to Cradle My Heart Radio. Great to be back with you, Kim. Charlie's professor of medical humanities at Creighton University School of Medicine, and he also holds the Monsignor Curran Fellowship in Moral Theology at St. Joseph Seminary in New York. Before that, he was at Fordham University for 14 years in the theology department, and uh, he also uh, has a Ph.D. in Moral Theology at Notre Dame. Charlie's also a father of four. Three of your children, Charlie, you adopted from a Filipino orphanage in June of 216. How is the busy family life these days? <laughs> well, we haven't killed each other yet, so that's a victory. <laughs> um, but uh, we've got our oldest out of the house and engaged, so we're we're on our way to some level of success, I think. Okay. So, and I, just tell me, you know, just give me the elevator speech about parenting as, uh, you know, go, for an adoption and parenting children adopted from another country. Well, um, there have been a lot of effects. The most obvious one is that we have a four-year-old surprise uh, toddler at home uh, who we weren't expecting. My wife and I thought we were infertile and Somebody, Kim, needs to do a double-blind study about the couples who think they're infertile and adopt and have babies, because this is happening all the time, all over mm. the place. I have no one to explain it. Maybe it's not explainable. Maybe it's just straight up no trace or God's grace. But, but, uh, but the, I mean, the, the real lesson that we've learned about this, and it's lessons all parents learn, is that, uh, but we learned it in a special way, is that you really do need to accept children as Christ accepts children. I mean. The gospel for today in my tradition, the Catholic tradition, is about Christ putting the child in the midst of um, the people he's talking to. And when you say, and he's saying, uh, whoever welcomes this child welcomes me and the one who sent me. And uh, it really is about welcome and hospitality and encounter and not about the kinds of projects that we often see um, used as a model for how children are raised today. Like children are not 
welcomed as a gift from God, but often seen as a project that you're like, oh, I'm going to, sometimes literally a project when they're created in a laboratory according to a certain kind of profile, right? Oh, this mother has to have blonde hair and she needs to have a varsity athlete uh, background and she needs a SAT score of this much or something like that, the donor of the eggs. But but one of the things that we've just learned very very directly and very clearly uh, through through adoption especially is just to welcome the children that God gives you as they are, and do our best to form them obviously and help them. But it's really not about the project that we have um, in mind for them, but about discerning God's will for them. Hmm. Uh, and uh, embedded in your response, I hear expectations, expectations. <laughs> you know the kind of the the Achilles heel for all parenting, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm not some sort of holier-than-thou person. I was raised in this culture, too. So, for instance, I have this um, one just specific example of this is, you know, I'm a professor, and so one of the few really, (laughs) really fantastic benefits of being a professor is that we can send our kids to a certain group of schools, colleges, for free. And uh, so I just had this in my brain, of course, right, expectations, speaking of expectations, that, of course, my children were going to go to college and take advantage of this wonderful benefit that I was able to provide them because of my position and I was able to offer this. And, you know, my, my kids, though we adopted them older, kind of grew up in our family with this expectation, too. And unfortunately, for, for a number of more than one of them, it's turned out to be just not who they are, right, this, this kind of experience. And uh, I had to kind of run up against my own expectations and that and just kind of say, well, this is a great benefit and it could benefit the right person, but it's it's not what's in these children's best, these two children's best interests and move on from there. So you wrote recently about uh, post Dobbs way forward on abortion and uh, how it's becoming clearer to you. This was published in January of this year. And I want to give you just full reign to talk about this in whatever way seems to make the most sense. Even a month after you wrote this, the landscape has maybe changed a little bit. Um, talk about what what you see as the future right now of saving lives from abortion. Well, if we need and we should, uh, to make um, abortion the highest priority issue of justice. What, what could be more important, right, than the millions of lives slaughtered by a throwaway culture that um, sees these populations as deeply inconvenient and able to be discarded almost like trash, sometimes literally like trash, if you think about how they're discarded in hospitals and other clinics. Um, it, wouldn't it make sense not only to you know, uh, go after what I call and others call prenatal justice, equal protection of the law for these babies. And that should be, again, like a fundamental priority. Like if we care about, for instance, social justice, which is how, as your intro intimated, I try to talk about this with people who disagree with me, you know, if we really care about social justice and expanding the tent of equal protection of the law for all, then this is a classic example of why we need to do that. However, it's not the only way, right, that we can make abortion the priority it needs to be. There are many, many other ways to do this, and the pro-life community has always known this. I mean, the um, the explosion of, of pregnancy help centers, for instance, is just a classic example of a way that the pro-life movement has known for, for generations is, is an appropriate way to respond, not just with working towards equal protection of the law via legislation, be it state or federal, 
but but to actually get down and dirty and 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 help women in desperate need and and the pro-lifers have done this again for generations they haven't always had their 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 centers firebombed by people who disagree with them but that's that's something relatively new in terms of its ferocity um but then again in terms of my reaching out to those um who we don't often have you know the best of relationships with i've said well one thing surely we can agree on is um creating uh new social programs to help women and families in desperate need i um as you mentioned i taught 14 years at fordham university in the bronx and just outside our well-guarded gates were um were very very poor communities and the abortion rate in the bronx at the time i was there hovered close to 50 percent that that's wow. one in two pregnancies ending in an abortion and often they were people of color uh, almost always in fact and almost always they were also very very poor um also worth noting here and this is where i think parenthetically we can say we need to do more work intimate partner violence was involved so it wasn't a choice you know as we often hear it was it was a coerced choice um often it was a man in the in the woman's life who was who would threaten intimate partner violence if they didn't get the abortion not always but often so so what about that part of it kim can't we this is what i would say to my colleagues who disagree on the prenatal justice side but can't we agree on public policies um that move in that direction and i'll finish with this point because i realize i'm going on here but um you know this has been you know a struggle in some ways uh because the pro-life movements have at times been connected with political parties that you know would support those kind of social programs but at times not right at, at times uh we've been uh, very very uh you know working very closely with parties who would not be supportive of those um kinds of programs. But I think now, post-Trump, post-Dobbs, this is a new cultural moment. And and the reason why you wrote me to have me on your show, I think, was after reading a piece where I was trying to signal that, that that we're in this new moment for the pro-life movement where it's not just kind of empty words when I talk to my colleagues who disagree with me about prenatal justice. There actually is hope, I think, for uh, pro-lifers and people who identify as pro-choice to work together on those social programs. And I just want to key in on one thing that you said. Uh, there's so much here we could talk about. But, uh, okay, so 50% of pregnancies in the Bronx are ending in abortion. I, I mean, I think this the statistics for Manhattan is that more children are aborted than born, maybe. Uh, more black For children. blacks. For, for blacks, blacks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and so, but as we think about this, you know that there that there, the poverty that may be driving those abortions. The idea back when it was legalized was that it was going to end poverty, that it was going to give women it was going to give women economic opportunity. And there was a piece in the New York Times recently about uh, girls who grew up as you know having been born to teen mothers who didn't want that for themselves you know, and managed to not get pregnant in their teens and then became mothers in their 20s when they chose to. And so they were wrestling in the New York Times, well, which came first, the poverty or the baby, the the poverty or the teen motherhood? And they really didn't come to any conclusion on it. But I think it's pretty clear that abortion doesn't end poverty, right? Yeah. You know, I work in a a field where, um, in a vocation, where supposedly we're, you know, all about arguments and evidence and being moved by the evidence dispassionately, you know, and doing the research and finding out where it goes. And 
and following that research uh, openly and honestly and with integrity and authenticity. But here is just one of many examples I could point to where the ideology just completely overwhelms almost any sense that we care about what the data actually say at all, right? Because <laughs> as you mentioned, it's just it's just so obvious that after a half century of widespread abortion in the United States, um, poverty rates have not changed in the slightest. Now, you might say, well, they might have been even worse without abortion, but that's not what we see in other countries. For instance, in other countries, the um, the abortion uh, laws are much more strict, including progressive liberal countries in Europe. They have much more strict abortion laws than blue states here in the United States, which basically are moving now towards abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy paid for by pro-life or tax dollars. So, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> it couldn't be more obvious to anyone who's paying attention that this is not a way to help women out of poverty, even if it were, of course, they wouldn't support it. But but when I dialogue with people who, who disagree with me about this, it's really important to say we should focus on other things, right, that some pro-lifers are really coming around to, like, say, paid family leave or help with hopelessly expensive child care. Or, again, this is really, uh, you know, not really talked about at all, given how much the data actually shows it's true. Helping women who are in a relationship where they of dependence with somebody who threatens their their safety and sometimes their very lives. Kim, did you know that the um, the most uh, common way that pregnant and postpartum women die is not from the pregnancy; it's from homicide. That's the most common way. I did that know that. And yeah. Charlie, it's not known though. Yeah. I mean, and I wrote about yeah. that in 2012 in my book Cradle My Heart and the fact that yeah. um and the and then again, the evidence was from private security firms that were asked mm. to guard pregnant women in the workplace. And they reported that yes, partner violence against pregnant women in the workplace was a huge risk factor for homicide. So, so okay, maybe I can ask you this question: Why aren't? Why isn't this just an obvious place of common ground? Could nobody, right? Virtually no one, right? Can we say no one would support anything like this? So, so why isn't there just an outcry against this? This is this is certainly not consistent with a pro-choice position, right? It's the opposite of choice. And of course, pro-lifers have multiple reasons <laughs> to be concerned about this, and. Uh, and I just don't understand why the data is there for anyone. You found it uh, over a decade ago. Mm-hmm. So why why can't we cooperate on this major issue where so many abortions are being ta- are taken? I mean, you think about 50%, right? I mean, no, even the most grinding, crushing poverty would never lead to that. There's something else going on there, too, and, it's, and this is part of the story. For sure. Well, and I think, like you said, the ideology here, and, and I guess, you know, my conclusion, by the way, on the homicide link was, as soon as we say, as a matter of public policy, that yes, you may take the life of a child, is it that much of a leap for someone who has some, you know, maybe a moral impairment that they're going to murder, is it that much of a leap for them to give themselves permission to go ahead and kill as soon as we say yes right. you may kill the baby i don't anyway that's kind of where i thought i mean i feel like the policy yeah. drives those homicides the legalization yeah. drives those homicides just for the devaluing of life right but you know and you, that just shows sorry go ahead no finish i was going to say that but that just shows again how powerful the ideology is compared to actual like response to real life data even when 
even when the response, at least in principle, should be something that people would agree to across the divide. The ideology is just so strong that that people won't won't move in those directions. It's It's really frustrating. Really infuriating to me. And here's another one you mentioned. You know, okay, paid family leave in the midterms. Everyone who was talking about that, I was like, wow, that's very tempting to vote for that because, yes, you know, I'm a grandmother. All our kids are, are building their families right now. I mean, I, I actually commuted to Chicago when the first of our grandchildren was born because Chicago daycare costs were untenable. So I commuted yeah. and helped, you know. And the thing is, it's like families need that. But guess what happened in the midterms? Dobbs happened, and then companies are instead paying for abortions. Right. It was like whiplash. I have, I still have whiplash over that. So we did nothing about, you know, pr- helping families. <laughs> what we did was helped abortion. But Kimmy, you and I have been doing this for a while now. Uh, you know, decades. I, if we just thought about maybe the political assumptions and the political, you know, uh, fault lines, you know, the eighties and nineties. Um, at least the popular opinion was, oh, it's it's the right wing that supports corporations and sort of lays over for you know lays over for corporations, 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 money in politics, money in politics, and it's on the right. Now it seems to me we re- we really have a different point of view on this, don't we? It's corporations who are uh, really pushing a lot of uh, ideology from the left, right, from the more progressive social justicey woke sort of ideology, including abortion. So it's the least surprising thing in the world to me, though it's just as horrific, that companies, uh, corporations would be saying, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to pay for your uh, family leave. Um, so you get some time at home with your kid and actually some time to recover for your body to recover and kind of put your life back together after this thing that just happened. But in fact, we're, we were we were coerce you the other way. We instead of supporting um, your choice for life, we will support your your choice for death. And to me now, it does really seem that there's an opportunity here, isn't there, for pro-lifers to stand up in a way that, again, in the 80s and 90s, might have been considered a kind of lefty thing to be skeptical of corporations to say maybe the pursuit of their you know. Uh, profit for their shareholders at the cost of everything else, which is the very definition of idolatry, right? Put everything else behind profits for shareholders um, is bad, right? And ought to be scrutinized. And we ought to have regulations that say, well, no, it isn't the case that you do everything uh, to um, to get profits for your shareholders. One of the things we should do, pro-lifers and people who are skeptical of corporations, should agree, for other reasons, should agree on, say, forcing them to pay pay family leave that, that that again seems to be something that could be in principle something that quote unquote both sides or people who disagree about abortion could agree on right and because we know that the great driver of abortion is economics you know yep. it, it's stated many different ways but it mostly comes back to someone saying i can't afford it or i'm trying to protect you know, future earnings, it's, it is economics. And therefore, you know, yes, corporations are uniquely positioned to, to do something for the good. Charlie Camozzi is our guest. And Charlie, as an ethicist, I want you to talk about, you know, you use that word coerced. 
And in your piece about a post-op's way forward, you write about the structurally forced decision, right? Because if, if my if my company is going to pay for an abortion but not give me family leave, that's that's a structural forcing. I want you to break that down for us a little bit for people who don't understand this, because I still really encounter people who say she made her choice. As if somehow this action happens in a vacuum. That's right. So, I mean, if you just start from the very act of sex to, to begin with, it's it's a coerced situation, right? Women are raised in a culture, not a neutral culture with regard to this, right? It's not as if there are two choices for most women sort of presented before you. No, it's a cultural expectation, that if you're going to date someone for any period of time, that you have sex with them, right? That's just a coerced, that's that's what our media tells us, that's what our stories tell us, that's the culture we become, the hookup culture just uh, presumes that. And and then when, uh, as often happens, right, biology, creation, whatever you want to call it, uh, girls and women get pregnant, the cultural expectation is, again, that you would have the abortion, right? Um, And I'm embarrassed to say this as a faithful Roman Catholic, but I've taught at Catholic schools, high school, and college my entire life as a teacher and professor. I've never seen a showing pregnant girl or woman at any of these colleges. So even even within ostensibly pro-life, you know, circles, there's still a kind of social coercion that says, well, you better, even if you decide to keep the child, you better not show up in these spaces because it's a place of shame, right? It's a place of shame. And so, so the coercion then continues, right? So if you, this, the structural coercion then continues, let's say you have a job, right? Um, then there's often another set of uh, factors that would coerce women, uh, to not, to, to not be pregnant, right? Because, you know, even in places that have legal protection or, you know, based on family status, there's a, there's a kind of unspoken, right? Isn't there expectation that, well, you need, if you need to be in this situation where you need help, then you're kind of like, a burden on the on the company or on the the um, the, the workforce, right? Others got to step in for you and help you, and you're the problem, right? And especially if you're young and ambitious, you might not want to. Uh, you might feel very strong social pressure to not uh, bring a baby into the situation and take six months off or whatever it is, or or have a child then at home that you might need to leave relatively regularly because they're sick or because they need to be taken to this place or that place, right? Because our, again, our consumer culture, our, our, our corporate culture is just not at all friendly uh, in these situations, or at least many, many times it's not. Um, and then like to, to, to make a final point and come back to another one, I mean, if you, if you have, um, as is, is the case in the Bronx and many other poor places, you know, lack of family structure and say you're living with your boyfriend who pays your rent and puts food on your table and you have two other kids, 50%, I think, of women who have abortions already have children, um, and you're just in this desperately vulnerable situation, and the person um, uh, who is the biological father of your child says, I don't want you to have the child, um, and will either kick you out or, as we've already discussed, hit you or otherwise um, uh, subject you to violence. Um, then that's an obvious form of coercion, right? Where if I have to choose then between, um, you know, uh, g- getting the crap kicked out of me and possibly losing the only means I have of taking care of my other kids, suddenly that's the kind of coercion that I think everyone can understand. 
Wow. You know, we, um, are, we're almost out of time, which is not, probably shouldn't be surprising to me because you always have so much to say that I want to hear. <laughs> but, and I didn't really expect the conversation to go here, but because this is where we landed, uh, I, I see a huge opportunity for the church with the Big C Church uh, mm-hmm. that if the culture is structurally forcing women, the church can, can structurally welcome women. And I'd like to give you a chance just to cast that vision for us, Charlie, of how, all right, if, if this is how we can really counter the culture to create a different outcome. Yeah, so I love, I don't agree with him on everything, but I love Pope Francis's uh, vision of the throwaway culture, which is related to the culture of death. But I think it's even more, sometimes it's not even direct killing, it's more just kind of like a discarding or throwing away that the culture, again, structurally pushes, versus a culture of hospitality and a culture of encounter, right, a counterculture. If we as church, Big C Church, you know, um, the Christ followers can can live out that right a, cult, a counterculture of encounter and hospitality that resists a throwaway culture in precisely the ways you described. That's where we need to be, and, and we can be really frustrated, can't we? Just expecting our politicians to do whatever we want. We should continue to push that. But one thing we do have control of as churches, right? As church, is to help create that counterculture within our own spaces, within our own structures, and create that counterculture that women and babies so desperately need. Well, and I, I hope it stays with everyone who heard you say it, that as a teacher, you have never encountered a showing student who's pregnant in a Catholic institution or in a Christian institution. And that, to me, is, that's very, very telling. Charlie, thank you so much for being our guest. Where can people get in touch with uh, what you are doing? I know I follow you on Twitter. You're on social media. Where else can people find your work? Well, they can go to find my books at my website, charlescamosi.com, or on Amazon. But probably the best way to follow what I'm up to is on Twitter, at ccamosi, C-C-A-M-O-S-Y. Okay, perfect. And, of course, we'll link that and to the article that sparked our conversation as well. Thank you so much for being our guest, Charlie. Thank you, Kim. Charlie Camosi, Professor of Medical Humanities at Creighton University, School of Medicine, as well as uh, Teaching Moral Theology at St. Joseph Seminary in New York. Please go to cradlemyheart.org to learn more, and thanks so much for being with us. This is Cradle My Heart Radio with Kim Katola, preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. Please get in touch with Kim. Find out more at cradlemyheart.org. You can listen to the podcast on all platforms.